Welcome to the New Money Review podcast, the future of money in 30 minutes. I'm Paul Amory, the editor of New Money Review. We're a periodical covering the changes in money, which are getting faster and more confusing. New types of money arrive out of nowhere, like Bitcoin. Payments get faster and cheaper. Cash goes out of fashion and mobile payments take over. Some people are on the inside track, others risk being left behind. Money attracts the cleverest criminals who always seem to stay ahead of the game. Our podcast takes a big picture look at these trends. It's not just money that's changing, but technology, finance, law, government and society with it. Each week we interview a leading expert on one or more of these topics. By listening to the podcast, you can stay up to date with what's going on in money and prepare yourself for what lies ahead. My guest on this episode of the podcast is Dan Hyde, who is a partner at London-based law firm HCR Law. Dan is also a visiting professor at Queen Mary's College, University of London, and the author of a book on blockchain and cryptocurrency, International Legal and Regulatory Challenges. So Dan, welcome to the New Money Review podcast. Could you start by telling listeners a little bit about yourself and your area of work? Uh, Thank you, Paul. So um, I'm a lawyer um, by trade, um, and I really got interested um, in the regulation of, if you like, you know, disruptive uh, tech and and innovation, probably around a, a decade ago. Um, at that stage, I was, well, and still am a, a, a regulatory lawyer, but it, it became clear to me uh, that going forward, there were big gaps in, in, in the law around things like the regulation, regulation of, of data, um, of cyber, um, and of tech. So that led me into um, both um, research and writing. So I wrote, I think it was the first um, book to really tackle how the the, the, the law could deal with um, issues such as cybersecurity and some of the trickier data protection issues. Uh, and then I moved into looking at um, blockchain, distributed ledger um, technology um, and tech, and again, looked at the international regulation of those and how um, you know, we could look to try and harmonise that for anybody looking to launch any sort of venture in those areas. So really, I guess, yeah, I, I, I'm a lawyer, I'm, I'm an author, but with a particular focus on these sorts of areas such as cybersecurity, um, blockchain and, and cryptocurrency, because they're, yeah, they're, they're, they're changing the world and they're changing the practice of law, to be honest. Uh, you've obviously picked a, a, bo- a booming area. Um, you know, over the Christmas uh, holidays, we've seen the, the people talking about the the, um, the fallout of this solar winds hack. And maybe we can come on to some you know some of those questions of uh, cyber warfare later on. But I'd like to ask you, you know, how, how adequate? The, obviously, you're you're a you're a lawyer practicing in the UK, uh, but uh, I don't know how how uh, easy it is to talk about this from a global perspective. But how adequate is the law for Fighting things like cybercrime or uh, you know, ensuring cybersecurity. Uh, so so there's, there's two parts to this, if, if if I may, Paul. So if we look first of all from the the UK perspective in terms of whether the laws um, adequate, I guess I'd say that sort of on paper it is. And what I mean by on paper it is is that um, we we do have laws that are what's known as um, extraterritorial. So. If I can give the the, the listeners a quick kind of history lesson in in the law, the main piece of law that deals with, you know, online crime and and cyber and those sorts of things. So it it wasn't until 1990 when we had um, the introduction of what's what's now known as the Computer Misuse Act. Um, And whilst that did seek to address 
um, hacking and, and many other like cyber crimes. Remarkably, what he didn't appreciate was the global nature of, of cyber crime. So in this country, as I understand in many other countries, what happened initially is we had laws introduced that were sort of domestic in outlook so that they were you know, enforceable against one's own citizens for events that took place within one's own borders. But of course, they were dealing with cybercrime, which by its very nature is often borderless and often the perpetrators are outside your borders. So it took us quite a, a, a long time. I mean, to, to walk back a little bit more, we didn't even have any law, if you like, capable of, of dealing with um, cybercrime until 1990. And, and, and that was demonstrated by this very famous case, um, two chaps by the name of Mr. Gold um, and Mr. Schiffering. And these two chaps went along to um, an exhibition when remarkably a BT engineer um, sat in front of them and typed in his username and his his password. And his password is something ridiculous like, one, two, three, four, five, six. Um, so they, they basically took down his name and took down his password and then proceeded to um, get an authorised entry into BT's internal, I think it was called their, the, the BT Prestel network. And then once inside, they were, they were able to create havoc. Uh, they could access all sorts of employee accounts, um, all sorts of um, internal um, BT information. And yeah, they caused massive damage. And Whilst they were prosecuted, it became clear that there was absolutely nothing to really prosecute them with. Um, they were that so desperate was, was the state to convict them that they were actually convicted uh, in the Crown Courts um, under the Forgery and Counterfeiting Act on the basis that a jury accepted at the direction of a judge that when they put in, you know, the, the username and the password, because it wasn't theirs, that was akin, you know, to creating a false instrument, so almost that they were forging a document. Uh, so they were convicted on, on that basis. Um, perhaps unsurprisingly, the Court of Appeal looked at that and said, no, nonsense, you know, that is far too transient. It's not, it's, it's clearly not a false instrument. Um, and whilst the access wasn't authorised, the password and the username they were using were actually authentic. So, it became clear after that case um, that there was there was no legislation to plug that gap or to effectively prosecute uh, any form of, of hacking. So that led, as I said, to the Computer Misuse Act, which on its face, you know, covered all the main um, cyber offences, but wasn't global and couldn't be uh, used as um, as a as a tool against any perpetrators. They often were outside the UK, so. It took, I think it was 25 years, it wasn't until 2015 when the Computer Misuse Act was actually amended so that it was made extraterritorial. And just so your, your, your listeners understand, the way that act works, it is quite quite clever actually, because what they did is they wove into the legislation something that said that if you could show a significant link uh, to the UK, then that was enough to prosecute the person. And a significant link could be anything from um, a link with the UK. So let's say you, 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 you were, you've been resident here or you're a UK national or passport holder. Um, that would be enough. But most um, helpfully, it would also be enough if any of the computers or the data in, let's call, in, in, in the offence chain or the attack chain were located in the UK. So 
um, if the, the, the victim, if you like, the target computer was, situ- was situated in the UK, um, or if, for example, the attack, the computer used to launch the attack was in the UK, or if neither of those were, but somewhere in between um, a UK computer or, or, or data was affected, uh, then it could be brought within uh, our legislation, our act, because it could be said there was a significant link. So you had a, you know, you, so in terms of fitness for purpose, when you look at that, you say, well, actually, that's great. We've got something that pretty much comprehensively covers all the different offences and allows us, you know, if, if we can show a significant link uh, to prosecute it um, here in the UK. The, the reason I said in, in theory and on paper that works is, of course, um, in practice, um, many countries just don't cooperate. So that means that you know they they won't extradite um, an offender, or they won't provide information, or they will actually um, protect that person. So that that that's where the the, the difficulty really comes in. So uh, Dan, does, that, does that mean? Sorry to interrupt you. Does that mean that the um, approach to combating cybercrime around the world is is similar? I mean, are pe- people taking a kind of national view, and that if if any uh, data uh, or you know internet connection uh, passes through a particular country's territory then it can be covered by the law of that territory. I mean, are we seeing a kind of national approach uh, uh, around the world? <laughs> that is a brilliant question because um, the answer is no, it's it, it's fragmented. So so across, let, let, let's say um, in Europe, you will have um, a fairly similar, let's call it um, philosophy amongst European nations. Um and what I mean by that is that certainly um, in in Europe, when we have this this for your, for your um, listeners, the General Data Protection Regulations, which is European legislation, and, it, and, and you know pretty much every um, European country is, is signed up to to that, and that 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 regulates um, personal information. So in Europe, there's a very much a like mind in terms of of you, and this view being that you as an individual. Um, have information um, and, you know, that's your personal information. And therefore, if it's attacked or stolen, then you have a right of, of, of redress. So that's very much the case um, in Europe. So it's certainly true that across Europe, um, you've got a much better chance of chasing somebody down. When you move to the United States, for example, the philosophy changes slightly because against uh, whilst um, the Americans are willing and keen to promote the ideology, if you like, of the um, of the, the individual as having um, data and other important human rights, in the US they are also much um, more likely to protect, if you like, um, commercial interests, so the, the big corporates um, over you. So I, I, in America, um, again, as I say, you have some uh, similarity in, in approach, but um, slightly different because, as I say, if 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 you were to come up against one of the big corporations and accuse them perhaps of of stealing or using your data or hacking you, um, then as I say, the the US are much more aligned to that sort of corporate interest. And then moving over to um, completely, if you like, different philosophy, you have countries such as. Um, China and Russia, which perhaps unsurprisingly because of their more um, authoritarian um, outlook, um, whilst they will give lip service, if you like, in some of their legislation to the rights of individuals, um, in practice, 
they will always put the state above an individual. So going back to your your question, if you if it turns out that the hack or the cyber attack was perpetrated by, let's say, individuals in Russia or China, regardless of whether they might be um, state backed, uh, it's much harder because they would that they, they, those countries would take the view that actually um, that's data that belongs to uh, the country. If 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 anything has happened within their boundaries, uh, then if you like, you know, they have um, sovereignty over over that data, over that instance, and they are uh, not going to cooperate. I mean, another country, interestingly, that seems to take that view is is, is India. Um, so there's something called the Budapest um, Treaty, which I think off the top of my head was signed in something like 2001 or 2002, in which most countries agreed to try and cooperate um, on cybercrime. But there were some notable countries, um, India amongst them, who wouldn't sign. And again, they used as part of their justification, at least, that they didn't want to, if you like, you know, cede sovereignty to other nations, that when it came to dealing with instance within their own borders, then 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 that was for them. So you, you, there are there are problems, as you can see, in um, in getting, if you like, uniform agreements around the world as to how to tackle this, because some countries actually don't want to. Yeah. So does that mean, Dan, that um, you know the only recourse that a country like the UK or the or a region like the EU or, or the US might have against hackers from some of these other countries would would be to Kind of pin a name and a, and a, and a you know a personal identity to the to the events of hacking, and then and then kind of sanction that person or prevent them from travelling. I mean, is is that the only thing that those countries could do, or are there other other measures they can take? Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's a difficult. I mean, we, I'm trying to think of examples where so so the the US is is particularly good at that. And what I mean by good is I'm trying to think of examples, but. If, for example, uh, let let I'm trying to yeah. So let's say the US have been hacked and the hackers are uh, Chinese. Then what they will do um, much more than we or the Europeans tend to do is is they will you know bring charges in a very public way. It'll be spl- it'll be splashed all over the media. Um, and but taking that a stage further, I I, I don't believe they ever expect to bring those people to justice it's more of a, a PR exercise if you like where you're you, and you're actually sending a message to that country or those people that you know we know who you are um you know if you try and board a plane to the US obviously if they were to come within the jurisdiction of the US um they would be um they would be arrested um yeah but um there's far too little of it, to be honest. I mean, your point about sanctions, I, I, I do wonder why sometimes you know, more action isn't taken against um, individuals or nations. But I guess it all boils down to geopolitics as well and kind of, you know, what, what's achievable given the balancing act you play of trying to maybe, you know, obtain trade or commerce from a, a country, you know, balanced against how hard you hit them when they when they attack you. Yes, I mean, from from the, the global picture you've painted, it seems to me that the, the you know the hackers uh, you know have have the clear advantage. I, I interviewed Michael Selmany on the podcast a few months ago, who's a computer scientist and payments expert, and he you know he painted the picture of these hacker organisations operating very much like you know multinational corporations yes. with with their own 
P, uh, HR departments, you know, company yes. car parks, you know, uh, company lunches, all these things, because it's a business for them. And it does, it does seem as if they're a few steps ahead of law enforcement. I, I, well, that's a, another really um, interesting topic, actually, because t to me, so I, I completely agree with the point about them being like um, a, a large, you know, multinational corporation. But there are also um, groups of, let's say, hackers as well, which are almost like, you know, um, small bands of, 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 of criminals, but that in some states are allowed to, you know, operate and almost to... Um, Sometimes they're almost encouraged because they can do, if you like, the, the, the work on behalf of the state. Um, and, of course, then the state can deny that it's actually done anything itself. Um, but what interests me about all of, of, of that and why I think it's important to understand it's not just it's not always massive um, groupings or, you know, huge corporations of, of hackers, because I, I think cyber criminals are particularly entrepreneurial. And um, this, this is why when you kind of, you know, look at the history or if you like the arms race of um, cyber criminality versus law enforcement, the cyber criminality tends to be always a step ahead. Um, yeah. Because if you buy, I mean, to me, it's almost like, um, you know, if you, if you run a legitimate business, you have certain things to worry about. You have to you know, pay your taxes, make sure that you're doing everything in, 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 in the correct way. But if you are running, you know, a criminal enterprise, uh, your main focus is to stay ahead of law enforcement because, you know, if you're snagged, your whole business, if I can call it that, becomes unraveled. So therefore, they have a very sharp focus on 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 keeping ahead, and they apply ingenu ingenuity that um, the police police forces, if you like, and regulators just can't match. And part of that is because it's almost like when you look at um, the history of entrepreneurship, you know, why sometimes can't massive corporations compete with, 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 with new challenges. And that's because the new challenges are, you know, nimble, able to think more, more freely, if you like. Um, I mean, can, can I go for a moment into sort of policing? Because I think the history. Yeah. Okay. So let, let, let me just explain this. So when we're looking at this, if you like, this arms race between, you know, the cyber criminal versus the, uh, the police or law enforcement, um, the police certainly in, in, in the UK, and my understanding is, is this applies pretty much globally as well. Um, they've always been pretty slow um, to, to evolve. So here, here in the UK, I think we had the first, or certainly in London, we had the first proper police force in 1829. And that, that was brought in by the, I think, Metropolitan Police Act of, of, of Robert Peel. And you had those early um, police officers who were called Peelers or later became known as, as, as Bobbies. Um, and, you know, they, they went out into the streets of London and they were armed with, I think they had a pair of handcuffs, uh, they had a wooden truncheon, truncheon and they had a, a, a wooden rattle and not much else. And if you look at all the, the early reports of what happened, the police operated on a very sort of, you know, localised, um, siloed basis. It was almost quite, quite tribal. And... One of the problems that led to is when they tried to then roll out the police force beyond London to other parts of the, 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 the country, um, other parts of the country, other regions were very resistant um, because they, they wanted to sort of, you know, govern themselves. They didn't want to be run centrally. And also the, the police forces had a very localised um, 
at attitude. So, for example, there was a real tendency, even back in those early days, to um, retain and you know protect information as opposed to sharing it. And that's something that has unfortunately carried on. So that even now in a modern police force, um, that is um, the, the 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 case. And just so your your listeners understand the relevance of this, I know we're talking about eighteen twenty nine, which you think, wow. That's a long time ago, and therefore we were quite, you know, an, an immature nation. In 1829, uh, we were in the midst of the, you know, the first industrial revolution, uh, and and Britain was certainly, you know, at, at one of the leading, if not the leading, nations in terms of if we call it technology. So, you know, it was at the peak of its powers, and even then, you know, it was struggling to to forge a modern, well-equipped, you know, police force. The it became very clearly early on that the the wooden rattle was pretty hopeless when it came to you know um, <laughs> calling attention to an emergency because all you can do is shake it and hope that somebody hears. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't until it was it was more than fifty years later that they then introduced um, a, a, a whistle um, to replace the the the, the, the truncheon. And again, most of the you know, practices and procedures that happened in eighteen twenty nine. Just continued and continued and continued, and 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 that continues to this day. Um, and just to bring you right up to date, I was reading some recent research from Harvard University because they were looking um, again at this 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 um, problem of you know the police and why are they so slow to evolve? And there were some really interesting findings. So one of the things that they pinned this on was they said there's this um, sort of machisma. Um, attitude that runs through the police, and one of one of the difficulties that that caused is that that if you like cyber crime or online crime was never or has never really been regarded amongst rank and file officers as you know real crime. So um, if there if if you have this machismo view of you know I'm I'm fighting crime I'm going to be heroic, uh, that doesn't sit well with the idea of maybe sitting behind a laptop or a screen. Uh, trying to look at what's happening, you know, in terms of somebody sending uh, phishing emails or, or, or anything else. So the, the, there was a, a, a cultural problem with, with with officers actually resisting dealing with cybercrime for that reason, because they thought this is, you know, this is what I came into the force for. Uh, the other things they found, which make a lot of sense, is that actually dealing with cybercrime is so complex because you're 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 looking at networks, you're looking at practices. Um, that take you know a lot of training and understanding. So again, it was a it was a, a problem that wasn't easily solved. So there was a reluctance to throw time and money at it. And then, of course, lastly, especially this applies to the UK, there often just wasn't the budget to to spend on that. And and again, in a force where you police force where you have all these moving parts, and you can imagine because cybercrime, you know, in historical terms, is relatively recent. It's kind of it, as a priority. It's not high enough up the you know the the ladder, if you like, um, for it to get the budget that that that, that it needs. Um, but over the next decade, Dan, presumably that's going to change, uh, you know, dramatically. We, we're seeing you know uh, a growth year on year, you know, all the time in cybercrime related revenues. The, the sophistication of the scams is getting higher and higher. I mean, and they can be conducted on a global basis. Presumably, the, the law enforcement just has is going to have to throw a lot of resources at these uh, topics. It is. I think it will happen, but it hasn't happened yet. And look, to be fair to the to, to the police, um, because 
the, you know, they, they, they have made um, in improvements. They are um, rolling out training. But my understanding, and I'm happy to be corrected if I'm wrong, but as I sit here today, my understanding is that certainly in the UK, the, the, the in percentage terms, you know, the, the number of officers who are trained to deal with, with cyber criminality and, you know, the different sort of evidential hurdles that brings up is very small. Now, I've read quite a lot of reports where um, it's shown that a lot of cyber cases just can't be solved because, first of all, you know, they fall at the first stage because there aren't enough officers to, to deal Secondly, the officers that are available, then you're overwhelmed with a number of cases. And then when you follow it through, there are problems because, as I say, the, the, the approach to, to sometimes solving these cases is so different to that that the police have been traditionally trained for. So, look, I, look, Paul, I, I agree that the police um, are, are, are improving. I think the problem is, is, again, we're back to when we talked about this this. Um, arms race between you know criminality and law enforcement the problem is is that the, the the speed the pace at which the criminality is moving and the threat is evolving is yeah. is always ahead or has always been ahead of law enforcement so they're they're playing catch up um one really important thing i don't know whether again any whether your listeners know this and very few people seem to know about it but it is important to understand so there is i understand um a new court that's being built um in in, in central um, London. And that is going to be a cyber court. So it's going to deal uh, with, it's going, to be, it's going to be part of the high court and it's going to focus on um, cyber cases. So both, you know, c- um, criminal and civil fraud that arose as a result of, of cyber. And it's supposedly going to be built in the next couple of years. We'll have, I think, 18 courtrooms and, um, they're the the certainly the information that's being put out is that it will be staffed, you know, with special with with judges and lawyers um, and, and all those in the enforcement um, industry uh, who are specially trained to deal with cyber. So that could be a game changer because my my belief is that when that happens, I think initially you'll there's suddenly a realization that you know we have a skills gap and that we we need lawyers that are trained and and police that are properly trained and judges that are properly trained to understand all this stuff. So I think that that could be a real game changer and that that's something that's happening here in London. So, you know, things are, changes are, are taking place. Yeah. So I'd like to ask you to, 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 um, to talk about um, uh, the invention of uh, cryptocurrencies and blockchain, something that's uh, you know, uh, happened over the last, uh, during the last decade or slightly, slightly longer. Um, it's a, I mean, from the perspective of crime, it's, uh, I guess there are two ways of looking at this. One is um, that the, you know, if you look at the origins of, of uh, or the original uses of Bitcoin, it was clearly a lot of the users were associated with some form of illegality, you know, whether it was buying or selling drugs or other illicit materials on the, on the dark net or, you know, or, or increasingly in things like ransomware. Uh, and that's still the case uh, for ransomware. At the same time, blockchain could, I suppose, help uh, criminal, criminal investigators by uh, making information well, through their transparency, blockchains could help um, reduce the number of agencies involved in investigations and uh, you know make information flows easier. So, uh, you know, how, how significant is this uh, invention from the point of view of law and law enforcement? Yeah. So again, that's another fantastic question because um, 
I, I believe a blockchain could be a, an absolute game changer for, for, for the police and for the justice agencies. So exactly right. So maybe if I give um, a, an example of how things work at the moment. So let's say you um, have a, a standard or relatively standard burglary case, you know, a, a domestic burglary. That case at the moment would have 70 what are termed rubbing, rubbing points and seven transfer points. So a rubbing point would be in, in a relatively small, easy, you know, domestic burglary case, there would be at least 70 occasions when the various agencies, whether it's, you know, the Crown Prosecution Service, uh, the police, an expert, whoever, at least 70 um, in points when one agency would need cooperation from another agency. That, that That's number one. So, so that would happen 70 times. And if on any of those occasions, let's say, you know, one agency doesn't cooperate with another um, or the communication um, is ineffective, you know, somebody doesn't respond to an email or a phone call, uh, then the, 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 the whole case can, um, can fall on its face. So in addition to that, you have, as I say, seven what we call transfer points when so a transfer point would be when not only cooperation is needed, but if you like, you know, a wholesale comprehensive transfer of information uh, is required. So a, a simple example would be is where the Crown Prosecution Service or a lawyer in, in, the, in, in, in the CPS says to, you know, the police officer, I need you to transfer, um, you know, all these evidence or all this file, all the forensics, whatever it, it, it might be. Um, and again, we know from research that more often than not, um, something goes wrong. Whether something goes wrong because there's a cooperation failure um, or whether something goes wrong because you know, there's a failure to transfer the information um, or it's not received or only some of it's received. So blockchain would be remarkable in the transformation it could um, provide because again, with with blockchain, you simply wouldn't have that because you wouldn't have this need for a, you know a central authority or somebody um, only holding information that's got to, to you know to pass it. So blockchain would be fantastic, and you you could have you know protocols and and, and protections put in place um, to ensure that you know the, the the different agencies are only able to access a, le- you know, a, a level of information that you want them to be entitled to, but. For me, I, I think that would be a really great use of, of, of blockchain because you would have all these agencies able to, you know, access this information without the danger of a lack of cooperation or, you know, a, a failure to transfer it. Because, yeah, as I say, you, you, you're not relying on on, on one on, on one person um, dealing smoothly with another. So that 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 that's one way where I think. Um, that massive, massive improvements could be made. Uh, another, um, which I'm not sure if the police have used it, but certainly I, I, I know um, that certain companies such as De, De Beers uh, have used, is where you use blockchain to um, prove or you know identify the provenance of something. So De Beers, um, in relation to diamonds and really to fight against a trade in blood diamonds. So De Beers used blockchain uh, to give each diamond, you know, a, a, a unique um, identification code that, you know, was immutable. That, so so it, was, it, was, it remained with that, with, with that diamond. 
um, so that wherever it went around the world, you could see exactly what its provenance was and where, where it came from. Um, and that is something that could be used for all sorts of other areas, you know, fine art or or, or, or basically anywhere where you actually need to look and say, where did where did something come from? And again, that's got obvious applications for, 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 the, for, for the police, but also um, in preventing crime happening in the first place, because to use the, the example of the, the, the blood diamond, it makes it much harder to, to trade in blood diamonds if, you know, you're dealing with a diamond that whatever you do to it, you can't actually disguise where it originally came from. So um, with, with, with blockchain, there, there definitely are um, ingenious uses that can be used for law enforcement, yes. Yeah, but these these are uh, theoretical um, applications of blockchain, presumably, because it's going to take a big mental shift for law enforcement agencies, whether it's the police or intelligence services, to to accept using a kind of decentralized uh, open ledger uh, for recording certain types of information, given that they're, you know, historically, most of them probably uh, wanted to operate in secrecy and, you know, within their own institution standards. <laughs> Yes, I, yeah, yeah I, I think you're right. Um, uh, but also, again, to be entirely fair to the police, they they are definitely getting better at um, working with the private sector. So, I think one way um, that might be easy for them to achieve is maybe you know if if in the first instance they they work with with with, with the private sector. So instead of having to yeah install um, you you know and train everyone to use those systems. In the first instance, you you work with a company like De Beers, or you you work with um, you know s- s- someone who's already using blockchain for that reason. So, yes, I I agree with you. I mean, you know, if 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 you think that back in the eighteen hundreds it took fifty years to to move from you know shaking a wooden rattle to, to to simply blowing a whistle, yeah, the police are traditionally slow to to to, to evolve, but. You know, I, I, I'm hopeful that we that, that they they will get there, um, and I think they will. The difficulty will be, of course, is that perhaps by the time they, they start adopting um, blockchain in those ways, uh, the game will have moved on. I mean, because that's that's how it works, isn't it? So, uh, the, the the moment they uh, they find a way to stop, for example, the the blood diamond trade uh, through blockchain, maybe the blood diamond trade has found you know, some other way. Of moving ahead, but but it was ever thus. I mean, I, I think that's the interesting thing about technology. And you were talking before about um, Bitcoin, for example, um, and its you know it, its use for criminality. Um, that's certainly true, but it does drive me mad as well because if you look at traditional fiat currencies, you can't say that <laughs> that they haven't been used uh, for, for 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 criminality. I mean, um, I don't know if you recently saw, do you remember the FinCEN reports? Yes, I wrote a few articles about it. Yeah, they came out last year. Yeah, mind-boggling. Um, the amounts of money that were being basically moved around the world by by banks. Um, and I'm not going to name any names, but I'm pretty sure from recollection, one of those banks, um, I, I, I can't remember whether, but I'm pretty sure, it, it, I think one of the banks was subject to a deferred prosecution agreement because <laughs> um, it had been under the, the regulatory microscope for, you know, suspected for not having basically proper money laundering processes in place and then it went on and basically continued to launder money so you know even with fiat currency um there has been you know deep and continued criminality that the police have never gotten top of so you you could actually make an argument to say well 
you know, is 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 Bitcoin or or cryptocurrency um, any different? And I do believe actually that in terms of cryptocurrency, I do think it had a bad press because, if you like, the it was in the interest of the status quo, you know, to give it a bad press. I mean, if you look at all of all, all, all of that and who was who was at threat, and all of a sudden, you know, you're going to have um, money that can operate, you know, outside of all the incumbent vested interests. It, it, it's hardly surprising, and I can I can tell you, just Sorry if I'm rattling on, but I had again. I, I remember police officers um, and lawyers, prosecutors telling me how frightened they were about cryptocurrency because what what frightened them so much was that they were so used to interrogating the banks so for example if 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 there was a crime uh, and they could see that there was there was you know money being moved what they would do is they would they would look at say um criminal you know mr a and um they would try and look at you know his bank accounts and they would effectively interrogate the bank to see you know what came in, what went out, which banks. So they, they they were used to this kind of you know paper money trail and a way of doing it. And then all of a sudden, the idea that the banks aren't even there to interrogate, you know, and you can't, you're not going to be getting sort of statements in the usual way to sit down and go through um, and interview somebody over was was perhaps unsurprisingly very frightening to people who'd always operated in 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 that way. So I would make the point that. Um, but those with vested interests were always likely to make a huge fanfare about the dangers of, of cryptocurrency. And, you know, the police and law enforcement have historically always been petrified of technolog- technological change, not least because it means they've actually got to change the way that that they operate. And that's change is always scary. Yeah. I mean, I mean from what you've said, uh, it, it becomes clear, you know, why um, blockchain analysis companies like Chainalysis or Elliptic, they're suddenly getting billion-dollar market valuations because of the work they do. I mean, there's obviously going to be plenty of demand for their services, you know, until, I guess, uh, national authorities can start doing some of these things themselves. But uh, you know, so th- th- these, are, these are all you know, new tools that have, have arisen since the invention of cryptocurrency. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and as I say, you know, it's – if you look at any sort of change or advance, it was the same. This 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 might be quite funny to your your listeners, but I'll tell it anyway. <laughs> One of the greatest fears of the police force was the fax machine. Um, when 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 the <laughs> when 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 the modern you know um, affordable available fax machine came onto the market. Uh, you had uh, the police um, and the um, and and the prosecution service saying um, that that was terrible because that that they could not see how they could interfere in 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 the process. So you know, for example, you can send a document from A to B, um, and they couldn't surveil that. They couldn't tap it the way they could tap a phone. Uh, so they they there was real fear about how the fax machine um, would make criminality. You know. Um, Beyond the police, because there would be a means of communication that they they simply couldn't eavesdrop on. Um, and you know, you say that most people now the fax machine seems the most innocent thing in the world, doesn't it? In fact, quite 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 dated by today's standards. Um, so that's an example of how something kind of happens. Now, I'm not saying that it will be the same with with with, with cryptocurrency um, or blockchain or, or cybercrime, because 
yeah, they, they, they have more potential uh, than, than, than that. But as you say, it's a case of, of adapting um, and finding new, new ways of thinking. Yeah. I mean, it sounds as if what you're saying, it sounds as if the, the cyber criminals and the hackers have got a, a few more kind of yards ahead of them or years ahead of them um, of being you know, relatively uh, unimpeded in what they're doing, unless there's, there are some agencies out there that are, that are doing you know, a better job or are kind of keeping up with them. Yeah, I mean, my, my, my view is that what will, and this is just, just my, my, my opinion, um, but I think over time, um, crime will evolve so that most, if not all, I mean, you'll never eradicate traditional crime, but that most, if not all of crime will be cyber, or at least cyber in some form. And that, by, and, and that eventually law enforcement will be, you know, will, will in turn be so focused on cybercrime so that you know where so, so because let, let, let's face it it does still happen but fewer <laughs> you don't hear very often now about somebody you know walking into a bank and holding up the, the you know holding it up with a revolver and you know give me all the money walking out with a swag bag that 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 can that can happen but the reason it doesn't now is because you could commit crime much more efficiently and remotely and safely you know from an armchair with with with, with, with a laptop um, and I, 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 I think that law enforcement will, will change. I mean, just going back to the police force again, law enforcement, if you look at the, the not all police officers, but many police officers and, and police forces around the world, if you were starting from scratch um, and you were told that it was to be a police force that was um, to tackle you know, cybercrime, it would be a very different looking police force, wouldn't it? It would be... I don't know whether you call it, you know, a, a, a geek army, for example, but you would be <laughs> you would be hiring a very different kind of individual with very different skills to those that that have traditionally been hired. Now, I hesitate slightly because I, I appreciate that in, because I see this in my work. Even with cybercrime, you have um, elements of traditional criminality as well. So, an example would would be is where you might uh, um, uh, um, use. Uh, surveillance um, or, you know, social engineering, for example, to enable a crime. Or So you, you have, you know, woven into cybercrime, traditional crime, you, you know, you'll have, you know, when, when, when the, a ransom is demanded, for example, you've got elements of blackmail and so on. So I raise that because it's important to understand that the skills that the tradition, that the police have traditionally um, gained and perfected are still going to be important moving forward. It's just, I think, more emphasis really ought to be on the the, the, the cyber piece. It sounds like the lawyers are going to have, uh, you know, to, to use uh, some creative skills, so combining those traditional parts of the law with with new, uh, you know, new aspects of technology uh, over the coming years and decades. I, I, I think so. And also, well, don't forget when I'm, when I'm talking about, you know, law enforcement, I mean, Lawyers also perhaps um, ought to be you know, trained more more effectively. Um, so, for example, I, I said at the start of this that, that I wrote about you know cyber and blockchain. Uh, but even when I, I had it in my head um, to write about this, and it wasn't that long ago, I think I first approached publishers back in 2012 or 2013. Um, and they were quite resistant to it because at that stage they just couldn't see how there was going to be, you know, enough interest or enough law um, around any of these topics like 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 cyber cyber security. 
Um, and part of that is because, you know, traditionally that wasn't part of, of a lawyer's training. So, you know, publishers would be producing books on maybe, um, you know, IP um, or divorce or whatever the traditional disciplines are. So, again, I think, uh, you know, universities uh, and I, I, I'm lecturing at um, I'm a professor at the University of London, again, talking about all these topics. Um, and certainly Queen Mary's, where I, I, I teach, um, is quite ahead of the game in introducing these sorts of ideas and, and courses that are, are much better suited for, um, for, for, for today. But that's, I think, the exception to the rule. You know, many universities and certainly the way that most lawyers are trained is in quite a traditional way where they, they study all the main areas of law. So lawyers, too, are going to need to play catch up, I think, in the future. Dan, thank you very much. It's been a fascinating chat. Uh, I look forward to staying in touch. And it's been a very uh, great discussion of, of all these uh, interesting new topics. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. I hope it's been useful. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the New Money Review podcast, The Future of Money in 30 Minutes. You can find a write-up of this episode at our website, newmoneyreview.com, together with links to any important documents or sites mentioned during the discussion. If you enjoyed this podcast, please like it, share it, or tell a friend about it. At our website, newmoneyreview.com, you can also sign up to our newsletter, which will keep you informed of all New Money Review articles and podcasts. If you'd like to support New Money Review, you can do so via Patreon or using cryptocurrency. Details of how to do this are on the homepage of our website.